With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Glory UGA podcast. And we are back at full strength today. Thank God, because uh, those solo shows are significantly more difficult to do than you guys would expect. It's uh, not exactly fun at all to do one by yourself. It's just weird. It just feels kind of weird. So serious props to anyone out there who does that on a regular basis. You are much better men than I am. But uh, I'm Tyler, and back with me today after a one-show hiatus is my regular partner, Kurt. Curtis, uh, you miss me, man, at all? You missed the show? Uh, it was nice to get away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, yeah, dude, thanks, though, leaving me all alone, man. I, just, I probably spent triple the amount of time doing that show than I normally do, so appreciate it. Well, the summer is mercifully rolling along, guys, uh, and it's the final week of June, uh, which on this show means it's time for the listener mailbag. Before we get to all your questions, let me just quickly remind everyone that you can follow us on Twitter, at glory underscore UGA. You can email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. And now you can also check us out and like our Facebook page. Just search for Glory UGA Podcast on Facebook. Um, you can also, of course, listen to the show on a number of different podcasting platforms out there, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, pretty much all those basic uh, podcasting platforms we are on. So whatever works for you guys, just check us out there. Uh, if you uh, do get a chance, it would be awesome if you would help us out by subscribing to the show and or sharing the link by uh, very simply just clicking on the share button on pretty much whatever platform you're listening to. They all have, kind of have that standard share button. Uh, so that would be awesome if you guys would help us out there. And as always, we also love to get your feedback on the thoughts and topics we discuss on the show uh, and just the show in general. So don't be shy contacting us on social media. This show, we always say, I mean, it's true, guys. This, this show is for all you diehards out there, so we do our best to be as listener-friendly as possible. So feel free to hit us up anytime. But, Kurt, let's go ahead and move on to the main event, which today is the June Listener Mailbag. Uh, I always love doing these shows. We get a lot of positive feedback about the shows, and a lot of you guys out there enjoy them. So let's go ahead and hop into this. Um, and as has really kind of been the case really since we began, when did we start doing these shows? About January, February? Around the signing day time? Yeah. Somewhere around there. But whenever we began this, earlier in the year, um, really from the get-go, we, we get so many questions that it's just not really possible for us to cover in the course of one show without the show dragging on for a couple of hours. So today's show, uh, like it has been for the past couple months, is part one of the June Mailbag, and then we'll be back with part two on Thursday. So if your question does not get answered today, I assure you we will get to it on part two. Uh, we always make sure we answer each and every question that you guys send our way. Uh, so, Kurt, you ready to kick this off? Yep. All right, man, let's do it. All right, question number one today is a good one. Uh, I think it's an important one for us this year. I think, so. I think I like this question. Let's go with that. Uh, Sam on Twitter, what are the chances that Georgia makes a New Year's Six Bowl in 2017? Kurt, what were you to say about that one? Um, I don't think the chances are good, and I'm going to tell you the main reason why is I think while I think we will win the East and get to the SEC championship game, there has been a history for a long, long time that the loser of the SEC championship game doesn't get a New Year's Bowl. So the, the like the one 2012. Yeah, the, well, I mean, look, last year Florida doesn't get it, but Auburn does. Um, you have a history of that with teams that lose it. Don't get into it, but the team that didn't, that was like the third, the third team out of the top, you know, the third one to the top, does get a New Year's Bowl. Yeah, and it's kind of like if you're not, if you don't win the E, or if you don't win the conference, you might be better off to be the next best team that didn't make it to the SEC title game. Yeah, if that if, if you if you want a New Year's Bowl, that's pretty much best case scenario for most teams because when you get into that SEC championship game and lose, you're more than likely not getting a New Year's Bowl. And you go back to two years ago. Florida, the past two years, did not make into an uh, – yeah, they won the East the past two years. Didn't and make you it had in, what, Ole Miss and LSU? Yeah, we both, had – Ole Miss and Auburn. Yeah, two years ago, you had Ole Miss and Mississippi State make it in. Well, that was 2014, sorry. And then last year, yeah, you had uh, you had Auburn. It was just Auburn last year. And then you had Ole Miss and was there one more team in 2015? I, I think had, just Ole Miss. Just Ole Miss? Okay. 
So, and, and neither one of those teams even played for the SEC title. Uh, and you go back to 2012, I am still pissed off over that situation. 2012, we were probably, we were a top three team in the country in 2012. We had basically a national championship play-in game in the SEC title game against Alabama. We ended up fading down the stretch. Our lack of depth just killed us. We ended up losing that game by just a hair. Alabama goes on, beats Notre Dame in that championship game. I'm still convinced that if we would have won that game and beaten Alabama, we would have beaten Notre Dame. You know, don't know for sure, but I feel confident saying that. But what do we get? What's our consolation for that? Not the Sugar Bowl. Was it the Capital One Bowl that year? I think that's where we ended up in that year. Capital One Bowl. Great. And who ended up in the Sugar Bowl? Oh, that's right. The Florida Gators, who we beat in the season and actually and, and took the SEC East from them that year. So they benefited again, just like you were saying. That's another example of a, of a team that benefits from not playing that extra game in the SEC Championship game. So I, I'm, I'm – I'm kind of with you on that front right now. Right now, a lot of it's up in the air. It depends on really two things. It really depends on how we do, obviously, but how do other top teams in the SEC do? If if the rest of the SEC has a relative down, like like last year, Auburn was the team that gets into the uh, Sugar Bowl with a a four-loss regular season. Then the only reason they got in is because when Alabama was in the playoffs, that means Sugar Bowl gets the next highest-rated SEC team, which was Auburn. Uh, even though they did not have a very good year at all, especially down the stretch, kind of faded. They were solid at the beginning, but kind of faded down the stretch. Uh, so they got in that game because there were, the rest of the SEC was just okay. Florida, yeah, Florida won the SEC East, but Auburn had a better year than them overall. If you look at who they played and who they beat, LSU was okay, uh, but nothing great. So Auburn kind of benefited from there. So if we're in a situation like that this coming year, where maybe we do win the East and we get to uh, the title game, and we, if we happen to lose that game, which you know, if you look at it now, I guess that's probably the more likely scenario. If we do indeed make it to that game, well, if there's a situation like last year where there are all the other teams in the SEC are kind of down, like eight and fourish, then yeah, we could definitely make it to a New Year's Six Bowl. But if you have, let's say, Alabama and Auburn each have uh, one loss going into the uh, Iron Bowl game, the last week of the season. Let's say Alabama wins. Auburn's sitting there ten and two regular season. We're at ten and two regular season. We lose to Alabama. Go to ten and three. Who's going to go? Probably Auburn, right? I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, probably Auburn. So, and it, But there's so much up in the air. I don't know. I'll say that. I will say this. I, we have a chance. We have, I think we have a very good chance to make yeah, it to I a game. Yeah, I think there's a chance, but you know, history, in my opinion, is not in our favor if you get to the SC Championship game. More likely because it, you'll drop in the polls when you lose, if you lose. Well, it depends on how you lose. How Like, it, like Florida, well, one of the things that hurt Florida— saying, look at, 12, I mean, we lost by four points, and yet Florida still passed. Yeah, that, that, that's why I'm still pissed off. There's no rationale for that whatsoever. We got punished for being better than Florida in 2012. But last year, I'll say it. The rankings don't make sense, and that's why, you know, in situations like that, it's not. It's a lot of it at the time is out of your power. It is. It is. With the college football playoff now, and you have the, the playoff committee. But I'll say this about Florida the last two years, if you want to use them as an example. They were not competitive in the SEC title game, either, either in either game. If they had gone in, let's say they lose to Bama by a field goal, they lose by a touchdown, would you think that their, their chances of making one of those college playoff bowls, or not the college playoff bowls, but one of the New Year's Six Bowls, would you say their chances would have increased if they would have just played them a little more competitively? No. Really? I, I think they would have. Well, I, I think it's because you had teams higher that don't take a loss. Well, okay, but let's say, but if it's all about rankings – in the college football playoff, it's if they're, they're, they're supposed to put a premium on conference champions in people who can, can actually are in contention for a conference championship. They say they do, whether they do or not, what they talk about behind closed doors, we don't know, but that's something they say that they put it, uh, and, and they're not required to go by that, which is why we've seen some situations we've seen in the recent years, but they say they put a premium on that. I, I think if, if Alabama was the number one team or a top four team, in the in the uh, college rankings in that game, and Florida played them within a, a touchdown or so. I think it certainly would have helped their case. I don't know if it would have okay, been enough see, to put them in. In, tw- in 2013, when Missouri was number five in the nation, they lost to Auburn by 17. Who Auburn goes to the, the national championship game? They didn't make a New Year's. They didn't make a New Year's six game. Yeah, that's because the perception of the East was what it was. I mean, that, that's uh, that's another thing that's hurting. But they these were a number teams. five team in the nation. Who Auburn? Missouri, Missouri was, was yeah, you're right. I, I know. I, I, that's tough. What, what are they, I think they ended up in the Cotton Bowl that year. 
I believe so. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like, every year's different. There's no rhyme or reason to it. When you have, especially in the college football playoff, when you have guys, we have team or members, men and women. I should say just guys, men and women on that who are rotating in and out. I mean, it's a three year rotation essentially, or you can just leave if you want. You know, but it's typically you're on for three years and they rotate you off. Um, so the composition of the college football playoff committee can change year into year out. So. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. And there's so many variables that are associated with it. How are the other teams in the, in the SEC performing? What is the committee looking at? What are the other teams around the country doing? It, there's, there's a lot of things that go into it. But if you look at it like we've laid out here in the, in the recent history, going back to, the, to, to uh, 2012, the, the East champion who loses in the, in the title game has not fared very well in terms of getting a – when it was back in the BCS, a BCS bid, or now a New Year's Six bid in the Koshwal playoff era. So – I kind of feel like we need to win, because <laughs> I mean, well, let's say this. Let's say Florida wins the East. Let's say we're both ten and two. Florida goes to the, the SEC championship game, and they lose to Alabama. Could we possibly be a team that benefits from that same scenario, like we've been hurt in the past? I mean, in that situation, then we do, yes. But I. So, which one would you rather? Have? Would you rather have a shot, like let's say, win the East, have a shot in the title game, or just kind of be sitting there, you know, sitting pretty at ten and two? And let the loser of that championship, let's say if Ford ends up losing Alabama or whoever gets in from the West, that we look pretty good for a bid into one of those New Year's Six Bowls. Which one would you I would go rather with? play for an SEC championship game. I yeah. think it's a big recruiting aspect, yeah. and it, it just helps. I think it would help Kirby yeah. Smart too. Yeah, it's it, it helps it helps the narrative uh, where we can and say it, we won it the- would help. I think it helps you for the next year. Because it puts you in a situation where you guys you have experience there. Yeah, you get you get that week there of exposure. Kind saying of you're like, playing I mean, for the title. Bama, game. I mean, I know it's a cliche; everyone compares them. But they look at Bama in the second year um, of Saban. You know, they go out there, they lose to Florida, who had been the powerhouse, kind of like Alabama is now. And you know, it's kind of like it's you know, I was connected to the 1980 you know U.S. hockey team. They play you know Russia. They play them in that uh, you know exhibition game, get destroyed. But then you play them later and later, and you're not as afraid of them. So I think if you get them on a, the stage like that, get some of these guys' experience, and next time they're on the stage, they're not as starstruck, and they they you know they're not about who they're playing and where they're playing. Do you really think that playing in the SEC title game and losing that game gives you more and better exposure than the potential benefits of playing in a New Year's Six Bowl? I do because the bowl games aren't what they used to be. Well, outside, outside of the college football playoff, the other bowls, like the other bowls technically never mattered if it wasn't a national championship game, but now they are. Even, even more. Now, their importance is reduced even more so when you have those those semifinal games in the national championship now. Yeah, exactly. So those games aren't as important as. And when it comes to SEC championship game, and it could come down to if Bama loses, are they a number one seed or are they even in the playoffs? There's going to be a lot of exposure for that game. Right. And bottom line for me is, when it comes down to, would you rather be in the SEC title game uh, with a chance if you lose to not make a New Year's Six Bowl or just sit pretty there uh, and, and not play in the SEC title game, and hopefully if Florida or whoever the East Champion loses it, who, whoever that is, if they lose and you jump into the New Year's Six Bowl ahead of them, if it comes down to that question, I'm sorry. For me, it comes down to you play to win the game, dude. Like you're playing for championships, and if you get a shot at a championship, even if you are a heavy underdog, you got a shot. And you go out there and you take your best shot. I'd rather take that day in, day out, any day of the week. That's me, though. But, I mean, I, I, going back to the original question, I think we have a chance. I just – I would put it at – I don't know, is 50-50 fair right now? No, I'd probably say 30-70. 30-70, yeah. I mean, if we win that – obviously, if we win SEC title game, we're going to be in one of those bowls. Clearly, that's what the rules state. And, hell, if we win the SEC title, we we probably put ourselves in a position to legitimately challenge for an actual playoff spot. Um yeah, maybe 50-50 is probably a little strong right now. I, I think, yeah, 30-70, somewhere. But we have a chance. We have a chance. I, I will say, if we end up like 10-2 in the regular season and we go give Bama a game, even if we lose, if we give them a game and play them well, I think we'll have a really good argument. Well, and like you said, too, it also depends on the other It just teams. depends on where we're ranked. It depends say, on where we're say ranked. Bama, say Bama's 11-1, but Auburn's 10-2, then... They'll take Auburn because in the end we would have that third loss. Well, the one thing we also have to factor in here: there's no rule saying that you can only have two teams from one conference in the New Year's Six. Yeah, it just depends. In on 2014, the there were three: you had Alabama, you had Mississippi State, and Ole Miss. Uh, Ole Miss was in the Peach Bowl. Uh, Alabama was in the Sugar Bowl, I want to say, and then you had Mississippi State in the Orange Bowl against Georgia Tech. So there, there's no reason that we that three teams or more can't be taken. It comes down to the rankings. And basically, if you're in the top 12. You stand a really good chance in those final rankings. But like we said, if you play in the SEC title game and you get blown out like Florida did the past couple years, 
then chances of you finishing that top 12 are not that great. Now, if you play them close and you're 10-2 and and you play Alabama close, wherever, maybe it's Auburn, maybe it's LSU, whoever it is in the West, that West champion, if you play them close, then you have a good chance to end up in the top 12, and then you would end up in the New Year's Six Bowl. But there's just so many variables that will come into play that's just really hard to predict right now. But we, I will say we have a chance. We have a chance. Uh, if we're as good as I think we can be this year. All right, next question. Question number two. Uh, this is from Garrett via email. Uh, this is this is the obligatory Zamir White question with his commitment pending here. Uh, I guess if you guys listen to the show today. We're recording it on Sunday right now, but the show will be up on Tuesday. So I believe that's the day he's – the 27th, right? Yep, Tuesday it is. So uh, Garrett V. email says, with less than a week before he commits, what is your final prediction on Zamir White? Does he pick the dogs? Where are you going with this one, Kurt? Um, you know, I hate to get ahead of myself, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident in him coming to Georgia. I think the biggest thing is, you know, um, there's not usually when you get to get worried or anything. There's a lot of that is by chatter, but it, it's not. There's no chatter. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, it seems pretty confident, and all the insiders from Georgia. It seems like the coaches are pretty confident, and you don't see any confidence like that from other programs. You don't see. The strong confidence from other programs, but are you not at least somewhat chilled by the fact that he spent not, not this weekend, but the previous two weekends he spent at North Carolina, which is his home state school? Does that not trouble you somewhat? I mean, I think it could worry you somewhat, but at the same time, Zamir Weiss is the type of kid that once he commits, he's not going to be taking these visits anymore. That is more or less these were his last chance to really go out to, to these other programs. Yeah, I mean, all reports are that he's uh, very Nick Chubbish in his demeanor and, and uh, you know, his integrity. I think, it was a, I think it's another thing of him trying to give the hometown school at least an opportunity uh, because the one thing that the one chatter I'm really hearing is the people of the townspeople aren't happy with you know the high school coach and p- situations like that because he's been pushed is more or less the fi- a feeling that the coach high school coach has been pushing him to Georgia because it suits him best well uh, and so there's think, also think, a bunch of his t- uh, you know I, I, I forget the guy's name but one of his best friends former high school teammate he plays in North Carolina like now Jordan Smith yeah, like I think that. that's it. So he's so he's got some a couple teammates, a couple former teammates, some guys he knows from around the state that are at North Carolina. So it might be a situation where he's just visiting them, hanging out with them. You you get to go up there and get treated well, and that makes sense. But it, but I, and I can understand like one visit, okay, who cares? Like one random weekend, that's fine, whatever. But when it's back to back weekends, that's when I start to get at least that's like when my antennas go up. I'm kind of like, whoa, okay, that's somewhat odd here. I mean, I'm not freaking out about it, but. When you have back-to-back visits to any school, especially your in-state I mean, school, yeah, that's somewhat odd, troubling. Think, think about Jemias Williams this past recruiting cycle. That's he was fair. visiting Georgia all the time at the end but still stuck with that's USC fair. because it's, it's the best opportunity and best for him. That's fair. And, and by all accounts, uh, you know, Dell McGee, running back coach, has just done an incredible job recruiting him. He's built a really great and I, relationship. And i got to say, this, to me, a big factor in this too is the fact that isn't it interesting? You know, there's a lot of rumors of how well McGee has been doing recruiting, and the you know, two and then he gets the raise. Yeah, the two specific players. You know, one is Amir White. I won't get into the other one because that just left out all. You know, left, yeah. it, it, that's a whole other subject. Sure. But it's just very interesting that all of a sudden he gets hit with an extension and a raise. Yeah, that that the the timing of that is certainly something that kind of perks your ears up a little bit, but. You know those kind of things. Typically, that's something that could be in, could have been in the works for a couple months. You know, with the lawyers wrangling over that. I mean, maybe it's something that's connected to this. Maybe it's completely unrelated, and it just happens to but be. Way, but I'm saying timing. the fact is, even if it had been in the works, it shows that he's done something to earn it, though. He's done a hell of a job, man. Like I was somewhat, I was uh, unsure of what he'd be able to do because um, you know he, he hadn't been in the college game all that long. He was a high school coach for years. Gets a job, works at Georgia Southern for a while, was an interim head coach there, ends up here. And so he hadn't had a ton of college experience, but man, he's, I think he's blown me away with what he's been able to do at the running back. I mean, in terms of recruiting, especially more so than anything. I mean, it's hard to kind of mess up Sonny Michelle and Nick Chubb. He's done a solid job with them, but on the recruiting trail, the guy's been a beast and just hope he continues. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm with you here. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say we get him. I'm going to say we get him. I think it's yeah, the best situation for him. Yeah, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but I, you know, I think I'm going to knock on wood I would say 70-30. I would say 70-30. So you have, have, you have 70% confidence level there? I'll, yeah, I'd I'll, say 7. I'll go I'll – go, I'll, I'm right on the round there with you. I'll go 75% confidence level there. Yeah. Uh, I think, the, again, I, I would feel almost I, like a 90% 
confidence level if it wasn't for the fact they took those back-to-back well, trips this late in the process North Carolina. Certain Georgia insiders has also said that he took a secret visit to Georgia. Yeah, right well, yeah, I, I've, I've heard some chatter around that as well. Um, after the, the, the second North Carolina trip last weekend, uh, there were some reports that he uh, was seen in Athens. Um, which, you know, I mean, I can't verify. I didn't see him here, but... Um, Hey, those reports are out there, and, that, and that, sometimes that stuff happens. It really does. And w- one thing that Kirby and crew have been doing a lot this this time around is they've been doing a much better job, or trying to do a better job, of keeping some of these visits quiet. Like like Justin Fields apparently made you know uh, uh, an an unannounced visit, which all they don't announce his visits, but a, a visit they didn't really get out, kind of a secret visit a couple months ago, a couple or a month or so ago. And uh, you know, was right after he decommitted. Yeah, right it was. Before. And well, then you've also like when I went to uh, well this summer. A couple of weeks ago, for the seven on seven camps they have up in Athens every single year, the media is always invited. It's, it's not a problem. You're usually allowed to come and watch everything and report on things and write stories and all that stuff. They can't talk to recruits or anything. That's against recruiting rules. But they can watch and observe and report and give their their uh, listeners and viewers all the information they need. But they weren't allowed to come to the seven on seven camp this year. I got to go um, because I have my ways and I got in there. Um, but there were signs everywhere saying cell phones are not allowed everywhere. You are not allowed to have your cell phone out. And they were being pretty strict about it too. I saw a couple guys get told, like, get told to put your phone away. Um, they weren't super kind about it. So clearly to me, the rationale behind that is if because there were all sorts of recruits visiting. Uh, there were prospects there that weren't even competing. They were just visiting. They were up there hanging out with the coaches, just chilling. And they don't want people snapping photos saying, look, I'm in Athens. Look who's here. They want to keep these things under wraps for various reasons. So who knows how many times he's visited us in the past month or so. We don't know. I, and he's a quiet guy. He doesn't broadcast anything. He doesn't publicize that. He doesn't tweet or do any of that kind of stuff. So you know, this one's been a – you know, he's been a lot – he's been reported to be a strong Georgia lean. He's never really said that himself, but it's been long reported that from various sources. So I'm going to stick with that right now. The UNC thing kind of threw me for a little bit of a loop. But I'm, I'm going to stick with what's been reported for months and months now and that he's going to become – a Georgia Bulldog like on Tuesday. Bet. Georgia's always been the other school. You know, there's, it was Clemson and Georgia, Ohio State, Georgia, right. North Carolina, Georgia. Georgia's been the constant. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, it's always been a, some other team. That's a good way to put it. Georgia has been the constant, and I think we'll be the one to get his get his signature in the end. It won't be signing right now, but I think, he, like you say, he's like a Nick Chubb kind of guy. He's probably going to shut it down uh, after this. All right, next couple of questions. We got uh, a couple of questions about Riley Ridley. For this month's mailbag, so we'll do these back to back here real quick. First one is from Dan via email, so appreciate it, Dan. Uh, Dan says, "I haven't heard y'all talk much about Riley Ridley and where he stands on the depth chart going into the season. So, what do you see his role being for the 2017 season, and how much does his suspension following his arrest have to do with that?" Uh, Kurt, before you jump in, I'm gonna just jump on something real quick. First off, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kurt. I could maybe I just completely missed this, but. As of right now, I do not believe there has been any official suspension announced, correct? Correct. It has not been announced. And now, yes, if you go back and look at history and base his situation on what we've done in the past, especially under Mark Rick, yes, our drug policy would typically mandate a one-game suspension. It's 10%, which we round down to one game. But Kirby has mentioned this summer in some passing comments when asked about it that this will be handled internally. Uh, you can't see me. I'm using my finger quotes here. Internally, now what that means, and if, uh, typically internally means you're going to run their ass off. Uh, you're going to make them get up at five o'clock in the morning and just do a bunch of junk like that, make their life miserable throughout the entire summer. But usually, when you say internally, that also means we're handling it that way with no suspension. Now I can't confirm that. Maybe they're just keep handling it internally and going to suspend them. They're just keeping it quiet. We've done that in the past. Where we don't announce suspensions until the day of or until the, the week of the game or whatever. Uh, can, kind of keep it quiet. So, But there has been no official suspension announced yet. Based on Kirby's comments, which he's kind of been speaking out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, not to criticize him at all, but on one hand he says, yes, I completely agree with our drug policy. It's in the best interest of our of our players. I think this was at the SEC uh, spring meetings or, or the SEC meetings down there in Destin when he was talking about, when he was asked about all this. So he said that, and then when asked specifically about Riley Ridley, he says it's going to be handled internally, which does not really correspond with our drug policy, which mandates a 10% suspension. So, I I mean, do you think he's gonna be suspended first off? Uh, I don't know because it happened so long ago. Well, he it got reduced. Uh, it got what do they call it now? Uh, pre-trial diversion. So what, what, he went. He entered into a pre-trial diversion program. So 
And maybe that's the the saving grace here that he's not actually going to be charged with. Or I mean, I guess in a pretrial diversion program, but you're, you're still charged with it. But just the way it's handled is a little bit different. So I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. But still, officially, nothing has been announced yet. So I don't want to assume he's going to be suspended until he's actually actually know for a fact he's being suspended. So let's take that out of the equation here. But let's go back to the other part of the question. What do you see Riley Ridley's role being for the 2017 season? Um, you know, I've been I've talked about it before, but I still think he's going to be the, in the first group. I mean, I think it'll be him, Javon Williams, and Terry Godwin, uh, the first ones. The you know the first group. Whoa, no, um, you mean no Michael Chigbu? Uh, you, know, you mean Stonehands? No. No Jason Stanley. Uh, Mr. Inconsistent? No. Uh, yeah, I kind of I'm with you on. The, yeah, I, th- I'm with you. I, I think mean, those are the three guys. Especially towards the end of season, Ridley and Williams, and you know, I mean. It was McKenzie, but Godwin's going to take that role this year. We're the, we're the consistent guys towards the end of the season, I, and I expect that to continue. Um, you know, I think he's gotten more of the trust in the coaches. He, you know, he was battling some injuries early in the season, you know, supposedly a broken hand or something like that. Um, but, you know, he, he started, you know, making some big-time plays for us, especially in the Auburn game. He had some nice catches. And, um, you know, I still consider him to be one of our top guys and probably the first group, in my well, opinion. He, he only had 12 catches last year, but he had 238 yards which is like 20 yards a catch. So he's a big play guy. If you remember the Tennessee game, which I know we all want to forget, but he made the should have would be game-winning touchdown all things if all things would have been normal. Um and that was a huge play. So he made some big plays, but he, he, they were few and far between as how I guess I would say. I mean only 12 catches on the year. But when you watched him play last year, like watching him play, he wasn't perfect. Uh sometimes out there, he didn't know exactly what was going on, but whenever I watched him play last year, I looked on the field, and it was hard for me to uh, – I think it would be hard for anyone to argue the fact – or my opinion that he was one of the three most talented receivers we had last year. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I think in terms of just pure talent, he was one of the three most talented receivers we had last year. Now, this year we've got an infusion of new talent coming in, and I don't – so I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I still think he's up there, but I want to see what some of these other guys can do. Some J.J. Hollimans, you know, Mark Webb, Matt Landers, those kind of guys. See what these guys can do. But he's still a very talented football player. And I think he has a chance to be very good for us. He needs to be, get more consistent. Missing the spring didn't really help this year, especially in terms of getting timing down uh, with Eason and Fromm. Uh, would you put Javon Wims ahead of him right now? Um, yeah, because I think he's got a little bit better skill set. Well, he's really, he's uh, older, too. Um, he's older. He's a little bit taller. He's, he's a little bit bigger. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, to be honest. Um, but... But Williams wasn't really, super. He wasn't like it wasn't like he was Mister Consistency last year either. He had a few plays no. down the end of the season, but he took a long time to get to kind of get into yeah, the rhythm. I, I agree. They both took their time to develop. Um, but I think the biggest thing is that I think you see it in the spring game that because you know Ridley missed most of the spring also. Um, that Williams really developed as his yeah. go-to guy. Yeah, I mean Eason. You, I've read a couple things and, and talked to a couple people around the program, and Eason and, and uh, Wims really developed a, a really solid rapport over the course of the spring, which is something. Which it's not the end of the world. I mean, Ridley will be out there in, in this all summer long. He'll be out there in fall camp, but still, I mean, that's you know, fourteen, fifteen practices there where you didn't get a chance to work with your quarterback. And quarterbacks typically make a pretty big jump in year two. So I think he's got. I don't think there's all that much of a difference between Wims and Ridley. And uh, I, I would put Wims ahead of him right now, but that's still very much subject to change. Uh, and both of them, both those guys are going to play a lot for us. And I'm with you. I think those two will probably, along with Godwin, be in our top three to open the season. And we'll see in, in how they perform, how they play, is going to determine what that looks like the rest of the year. I think we have some young guys that will push them. But I think Ridley's going to get a lot of playing time for us. I think he's going to make some big plays for us. I think he's going to be a starter. So, yeah, I think he's going to have a big role for us in the 2017 season. Now, uh, next question here is from Will, also via email, and also about uh, Riley Ridley. And Will says, as a sophomore last season, Calvin Ridley's produ- production dropped for Alabama. With a more experienced Jacob Eason, do you think Riley can surpass his big brother in production this year? Um, you know, I'm going to say no, but I, I think one thing that he needs to put in perspective is the fact that in year two, Ridley was dealing with a freshman quarterback who was not polished passing-wise compared to as his freshman year. He was with the fifth-year senior uh, getting him the ball, which created right, a Jay big— Right, Coker, yeah. 
Yeah, which created a big difference. Um, you know, they Coker is more of a down deep ball threat where you would see Ridley make a lot of deep ball catches, which didn't happen as much with Jalen Hurts. Um, but and putting that in perspective, I also think that while I think Ridley will have a better season than he did last year, he's not going to have the yards per catch he had as a freshman. Um, I think he will improve his numbers, but at the same time, I think we have more weapons that we like to use. I think we like to use our tight ends more. Um, we'll use slot receiver like Terry Godwin more, like we already mentioned, Wim. So I think he'll have a better season. But I still don't think he's the caliber of the brother. Yeah, man. Okay, so let's look at Calvin Ridley's numbers here for a second. I gave you Riley Ridley's numbers from last year as a true freshman. 12 catches, 238 total yards, basically 20 yards a catch. Oh, Calvin Ridley as a true freshman two years ago, which is for 1,045 yards. To put that in context, guys, the Georgia single season record for receptions in one year was is 76 by Bryce Hunter. The Georgia single season record for receiving yards in one year is Terrence Edwards in 2002 with 1,004. So in one year, in his true freshman year, if he had played at Georgia, Calvin Ridley would have set our single season yards record, okay, as a true freshman. Now, last year, he did take a step back with 72 catches and 769 yards, still only been four yards off our all-time single season record for receptions. Uh, and like you mentioned, a, a large part of that had to do with the fact that you had a true freshman quarterback in Jalen Hurst, who is not uh, a very polished passer at all. That's, that's being very kind about it. Uh, did, did fairly well with some RPOs, so a lot of stuff behind the line of scrimmage to our, to our Darius Stewart. But he, they just didn't use Calvin like they did his first year because they didn't have the same personnel at quarterback. That's just as simple as that. But still, even in a down year for him, based on what he did his freshman year, he still had 72 receptions for 769 yards. Whereas Riley, like I said, 12 catches, 238, 20 uh, yards per catch. So the only way that happens is if Riley makes an astronomical jump in year two and his brother takes an astronomical step back. And I just don't think that's likely, right? No, I mean, it, to be fair, no. yeah. I mean, his. I, I'm one of those guys. That I, I don't like to speak in absolutes. I never like to speak in absolutes because you can never say never. I've learned that over my years on this earth. But I would say it's highly unlikely that that happens. Anything is possible. Crazy things happen every day, but extraordinarily unlikely that that's going to happen. I mean, it would take an. It would take a combination of an all-time great season by our wide receiver standards for Riley Ridley and then a significant drop-off for his brother. So I, I'm just going to say, no, I think Riley's going to take a big step himself this year. I, I would put Riley somewhere around the 40 to 50 catch mark. Is that fair? I think it may be a little high. I'd say 30 to 30? 40. 30? Yeah, I mean, that's probably fair. I, okay, 30 to 40, I think that's somewhere in the right neighborhood. We had to do a lot of guys trying to get the ball around too, probably. But I, honestly, if he has half as much production as Calvin... I'll take that as a solid year, right? Yeah. I mean, really, I would. So I just I don't think that's going to happen. I, I like Bradley. Don't get me wrong. I do. I mean, they're different players, too. Calvin's more of a, of a deep vertical threat. He's got more speed, uh, whereas Riley's a little – he has good speed himself, but not his brother's type speed. They're just different players. All right, next question here. Question number five on June Mailbag Part 1. We've got Barry on Twitter. What, if any effect, will the new staff member, Jay Johnson, have on our offense this year? So for those of you who are not super familiar with Jay Johnson, he was a former Minnesota offensive coordinator. Of course, had a staff change this year with their whole potential strike deal and things were going on towards the end of that season. Um, so he's got some credentials, and now he we hired him as a support staffer, an analyst basically, for this season. Uh, so, so Kurt, do you... You think he's gonna have any effect on what our offense looks like in 2017? No, not at all. I think if anything, he's gonna be more of like the behind the scenes guy with Easton watching film, breaking film down, even maybe working on you know mechanics and things like that with him. Well, that's well, he has to be a behind the scenes guy because by rule, if you're, well, you're, yeah, I know that. But yeah. that's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't think he's gonna. Ha- I mean, he, he's gonna be the guy that's like I said, watching film with Easton, and you know, while Chaney and them are breaking down a film for say week two. He'll be in the in the film room already breaking down the film for week three. Yeah, that's what that's the purpose behind having offensive analysts. That's what they do. Yeah, yeah, they no, help I you with game plan. More or less, gonna make the offense look any different, but just help you know ha- have a different look, you know, different set of eyes looking at it. I think he's gonna be like a second quarterback coach, like an off the field quarterback coach, kind of like what they had when uh, or Alabama had with Sarkeesian. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so. 
and just in, and, and I know a lot of you probably know this, but just in case you don't, like if you're if you're you only have nine on field assistant coaches, you can't. If you're not one of those nine, then you cannot be on the field and have any coaching responsibilities whatsoever. You can't do it. That's uh, breaking the rules. So he'll have to be relegated to behind the scenes work, but that doesn't mean he can't be a valuable piece to our team. And like you said, Chris, I mean, he'll be in there breaking down practice tape with the with the with the quarterbacks. Uh, and that's something I'm actually really excited about because this guy has a pretty darn good reputation for working with quarterbacks. Um, and his last quarterback, Mitch Leidner from Minnesota, you know, I read a couple of months ago when he, when he first got hired, he had some. He was just raving about what we were getting in Jay Johnson, how he helped him with footwork and timing with the routes and yeah, timing I mean, with the receivers. Yeah, I mean, look at what Minnesota had. I mean, he got the most out of that kid. Yeah, he, he turned Mitch Leidner into a serious threat. Mitch Leidner was a really good player by the end of his career. Uh, and he wasn't, you know, obviously wasn't a highly recruited guy. Wasn't people didn't think much of him coming into high, into college, but he turned him into a pretty darn good college quarterback in the Big Ten. So he's he's a guy that can work with Corbis, and I think that's something that I mean, I know a lot of people are down on Jim Cheney as an offensive coordinator going into the 2017 season based on how our offense performed last season. And while I think there's some validity to that, I also think he's received far more criticism for the failures of our offense a year ago than he actually deserves. Now, don't get me wrong, guys. I know he's the offense coordinator. I know what his job is. I know his job is to get the offense to function effectively and to score points. And let's just be real. We didn't function effectively enough last season, and we didn't score enough points. That's largely on him. But I also think there were many variables at play last season that were largely out of his control, including a true freshman quarterback and an offensive line that just could not bust a grape. It's hard to do that when you don't have a line that can block and open up holes in the run game or protect the quarterback and a true freshman who doesn't always know exactly what to do. So I, I don't remember. I do think he deserves some criticism, a fair amount of criticism. He wasn't perfect, but I also don't think he was as bad as a lot of people out there want to make him out to be from a year ago. However, I will say, in my humble opinion, his biggest shortcoming last season was his coaching of Jacob Eason. As a quarterback coach, I think he was, uh, I think he felt as much more as a quarterback coach last year than he did as an offensive coordinator. If you go back and watch our games, guys, he tried a lot of different things. I know he gets a lot of crap from people out there for not being creative enough. Uh, and I just don't know where that comes from. He tried a lot of different things, guys. We opened the season trying to go uh, 22 personnel, really heavy sets, almost looking like Stanford to a degree against North Carolina. When we worked well against them, and they didn't work against Nichols and didn't work really against Missouri all that well. So then he tried to, to, to go to more gun looks where Easton felt more comfortable, get the ball in the perimeter from the gun, and do a lot, go to more zone blocking schemes as opposed to man blocking schemes. He tried a lot of different things. Now maybe it clearly wasn't enough, but it wasn't like he was just trying to force us into this one prescribed scheme come hell or high water when it didn't fit our personnel. He tried different things. The problem was we couldn't block anybody. We couldn't really catch the ball consistently outside of Isaiah McKenzie. And we had a quarterback that didn't know what was going on half the time. Uh, we just chucked the ball. And when, we, when he did dial up plays to get guys open down the field with some vertical looks and these layup shots, Easton just flat out missed too many of them. So I, I, I think that he did a fairly good job as an offensive coordinator, better than people think. Uh, maybe fairly good is a little strong, but better than people think. But I do think his biggest shortcoming, where he failed us more than anything, is as a quarterback coach. I just don't think that he that Eason made enough progress uh, last season under Jim Cheney Tulich. Now, he was a true freshman. You're not going to be a, a superstar from day one most of the time. There's going to be some flaws in your game. But I didn't see that progression I wanted to see from Eason from game one all the way to game 13. So it's going to be nice to have another set of eyes there to kind of help Eason with that process and growing up and kind of learning the finer points of the position. See, like, it's, it's nice to have a true quarterback coach. It allows... Cheney to actually look at the whole offense as a whole, where he has someone that can. And it's still not a focus. true quarterback coach because he can't be on the field, but well, yeah, he can but do still do a lot of things. Scene, yeah, give Eason the attention while allowing Cheney to look at you know the whole. Yeah, I think that's going to be his biggest contribution to our team this year. Yeah, sure, he'll bring some ideas with him uh, that he's used in the past and kind of share those with our offensive staff, and then probably incorporate a few of those ideas into our offense. But nothing significant, I wouldn't think there in terms of the what our offense actually looks like schematically. I think as a quarterback coach or another eye, another set of eyes on the quarterback position, kind of helping those guys grow and develop, I think that's where his value is going to be found the most. Uh, question number six here. Uh, Alvin on Twitter, uh, one of our loyal listeners. We always appreciate you, Alvin. Uh, and Alvin asks us, who do you predict may be a surprise player on offense out of the true freshmen? Um, I think that's easily going to be uh, Jeremiah Holloman. Okay, so that's exactly why I had. So I'll go with somebody different. All right, tell me why Jer- Jeremiah Holloman. 
I think he's just the person with the best opportunity, you know, early enrollee to get on the field. You know, we have receivers, but we don't have, we have a lot of unproven talent at receiver. Right. So well, we, we, we don't have those firmly established guys. Well, that's what I'm saying. Unproven, yeah. you know, no one's yeah. established sure, yet. Sure, so sure. I think it gives him the best chance to be um, someone to come in there and get some, you know, make an impact. And he's got all the tools, man. He's got good speed. Yeah. He's got good size. He's got solid hands. Uh, now, now in high school, there was a knock on him that his hands weren't great. But what I saw of him in the spring, um, and what I heard about him in the spring, was that he was flashing some really solid hands. Uh, he's just he's got what it takes, man. He's got good leaping ability. I I, I think he's gonna be really good for us, and I, we'll see what happens in year one. But I'm with you on that. I think he can be a guy that can really do a lot of good things for us offensively this year at the wide receiver position. Uh, that's who I have. Um, all right, it's really easy. It's too easy to say Isaiah Wilson, right? It's too easy yeah, to say I, that. I, I could have so, said him. Yeah, I'm not going to say Isaiah Wilson. That's just too easy. So I'm going to go with another offensive lineman, and I'm going to go with Andrew Thomas. I think he's going to have a shot. Uh, I know people have focused a lot on Isaiah Wilson, justifiably so. The dude's a monster. He's a beast. I think he's going to play a lot for us this year. He might even start game one. We'll, he'll have to earn that. We'll see. But I think a lot of people, because they were so high on Wilson and were so euphoric over us landing him, which is awesome. Trust me, I was too. I think we're somewhat forgetting about Andrew Thomas. Andrew, you know, I, I like Thomas. I just think the one thing that's going to hurt him is he's weak. Well, in what context? Like when? I, I, what I mean is like, okay, the, the there was a point in his high school career where he, that was the case, but I think he's taken steps to correct that. Well, yeah, I, I agree. The person I, he reminds me of is John Theus. John Theus had a great career at Georgia, but... And, but John Theus started as a true freshman, started for four years. No, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't disagree. I think he's a good player. If, if I was looking at one thing that might stop him... Sure, he, he's, he, he's, not, he's not nearly as physically developed as Isaiah Wilson is, clearly. Like, not even close. No, but I, I think, I think you, you're on to something. I think that he's definitely, if anyone's going to push any... You no, know, I think he could push Isaiah Wilson or push any of the other guys. That are, He's more of a true left tackle, where Wilson, I think, is a true right tackle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Wilson, I mean, long-term... I mean, I, look, I, I'm, I'm weak. I think Wilson could play left tackle if pressed into service there, but I think he's much more of a fit at right tackle, whereas long-term, oh, I think Andrew yeah, Thomas, Thomas is has a, some versatility yeah. to him, which can't help him. I agree. I mean, is there a scenario where they both perform really well? Because I think they're – honestly, I think they're they're going to come in. there is a scenario because no one has proved, has established himself. You know, Hayes, he's, he's going to take some time. Um, um, wow, Isaiah Wynn has done zero to establish himself at any position. He's, well, that's a little strong. He's been a, he's been a, he hasn't been a great player for us in the line. He's yeah, been but solid. he's never he's never established himself as a go to guy in any true okay. position. I'm saying true. center Fair. he couldn't make it. Guard he's had. a I lot will say of this at the him. seven on seven camp they also have a lineman camp going on at the same time. And I was uh, I was over there watching the lineman one day. And uh, while the linemen were taking a break, I uh, was kind of just eavesdropping on a conversation between Sam Pittman and uh, I think it was one of the parents or coaches somebody. And the guy had asked him about the offensive line, what does it look like this year, and he seemed pretty pretty adamant in saying that as of right now, um, and if I heard him correctly, which I think I did, that uh, he was that he was going to be playing left tackle for us this well, year. I mean, yeah, because he hasn't Isaiah had anyone else in there. Yeah, I mean, and, and but again, based on what he knows right now, now maybe Wilson comes in and maybe Thomas comes in and they show that they're ready to take over those spots. At a, at a young age, which is not only is something you can count on, but if they do show that they're ready, then that would allow us to slide win back inside. Would you prefer win inside or outside? Maybe outside because he can't handle. He's just not, That's he my can't. issue. Like if he doesn't play on the outside, like I don't think he's a great fit in either spot because inside he doesn't have the weight. He's not big enough. Well, he has put on some good weight this year. I will say I mean, that. Still, I mean, he was in Eason's lap on two step drops. Now he was. He was. I know. And, but he, and he, while he has good footwork, and that's the strength of his game is his footwork and his athleticism on the offensive line. But he doesn't have the link to be a really true dominant yeah, left that, tackle. That's so I mean, I some of these big, some of these big DNs or outside linebackers are just longer than him and get yeah. around him. I just I think he's a tweener. I like his footwork. I like his foot speed and and, and his athleticism out there. But he doesn't have that link. I, he's just I don't know if he has a true position on the offensive line outside of center. I think he'd be a really good center. That's the thing I, I do. But we know when he we tried that early on in his career and he couldn't get the snapping down. He couldn't. Well, no, there's multiple and, things. Yeah. Not only could he not get the snap down, he, 
it, uh, they moved Kublano over to center because Kublano was having to make the offensive line calls as a guard. I know, but I mean, he was also that was early in his career. You would think by well, now yeah, he would I mean, be able to, to do a better do it, job they there. Tried to, they would have tried to get him. There yeah, that's true. Favorite. I just, I, I think physically speaking, his more natural position would be center if yeah, there was anywhere. Physically speaking, that's where he should be. Yeah, and I guess we kind of got off off track here, but I mean, going back to the original question, the reason I'm saying Andrew Thomas, I think there's a, I think Thomas and Wilson will be given every opportunity to compete with each other and. Sean Sims, whoever, and Ben Cleveland over there at right tackle. Um, but let's say that Wilson comes in, he's ready to go. Maybe Thomas is ready to play left tackle, and then you slide Wynn down somewhere else. I don't know, man. What, there's just so much left. I mean, it's really hard to predict what's going on. I mean, you can't. It's impossible. But I think yeah. there's some different scenarios where that could happen. I I, I just think that Thomas is a, is a go- very good football player that we're forgetting about because we were so pumped up about getting Isaiah Wilson. All the attention is thrown at him, and we're kind of – just keep, he's kind of flying under the radar there uh, in terms of Andrew Thomas, flying under the radar. I, I think he's a guy that's going to be really good. If it's not this year, I still think he's going to be really good for us. And I think there's a chance that he could play this year for us offensively. So we'll see. I think I, I guess if I'm not going to go to J.J. Holloman, I'll go, uh, I'll go Andrew Thomas there. Uh, all right, Adrian via email has question number seven for us here. How big of a recruiting miss was Kyler McMichael's commitment to Clemson, and where do we go from here at the cornerback position in the 2018 class? Um, you know, while I think it was a miss, I'm not going to say it's a huge, gigantic miss, but especially when it comes to the cornerback position, because I don't think he would have actually ever fully played cornerback and stayed at that position. Where would he have been? I think if he's going to play defensive backfield, it's going to be at the safety position because really? all, all things being said about him is he really lacks those hit the quick hits that you need to be a successful cornerback. All right, so I saw him at the seven on seven camp. They were there on the first day of the camp. There's there's three days. Uh, you have various teams there from around the state, and actually some teams from the southeast. A couple teams from Florida came down. I think there was a Burns from South Carolina came down, um, but uh, they were there. He was there the first day, and they actually won the whole thing the first day. GAC did, and uh, he played cornerback. And I, I did not, I didn't see every game they played because there's a bunch of games going on all the time. There's some at the indoor facility, or some at the stadium, there were some of the intramural fields. So I didn't see every game he played, but I watched at least three of his games, three and a half really. And I did not see one pass he completed on him. Now saying well, yeah, that, I, mean, I, I think you can say that when it comes to the high school level, there's a lot of guys like that. But it's even been said that Clemson has pretty much told him already that they that long term they see him at safety. Yeah, and. I, what I was going to say was like he, uh, while I did not see a pass completed on him, they were played, I would say, 85% of the time they were in zone coverage. So it wasn't like he was falling a guy in man coverage and had to flip his hips. When you're playing in zone, you're basically just reading the quarterback sides, reading the routes, or the route combinations, and you're breaking on routes, which you don't necessarily have to flip your hips to do that. You really don't have to have that skill in that, in that particular setting. So a lot of it was that. Uh, he did show, he showed some really good ball skills. There were a couple of situations where he was in man coverage. I thought he, he stuck in the hip pocket pretty well. But they didn't complete a pass on that I saw. He had one nice pick, one that went right through his hands that should have been picked. Uh, but he looked good, and he, he's really athletic. I'll say that. he He's not super polished at that position. He's got a lot of work to do there, and I can see where he could, where he might be a better fit at safety. He, he's also, I, mean, I think this bears mentioning too, he, right now I think he's one of the better running backs in the state of Georgia this year. Like, he's a really good running back. Uh, but long term, his potential on the road is not going to be that business where. So, Look, we wanted him. I'm not going to sit here and say we didn't. We wanted him. I wanted him. I thought he would, he would have been a really nice addition to this class. But it's not a devastating loss because there's other guys yeah, on the board there. I mean, I'll be honest. If you're looking, if he's talking about true quarterback position, Chris Smith. I mean, Chris Smith is better. In, yeah, he's a he's an actual projected quarterback. Yeah, his team was down there the first day too. Uh, I believe it was the first day that Tuesday. Yeah, it was. Uh, and he played really well. I mean, he now he is a guy that can that has the potential. He's not quite there yet, but you can see where he has the skills and the potential down the road to be uh, a really good and potentially even a shutdown type corner. Although I don't really think shutdown corners exist anymore uh, with the way the offensive way the rules are favoring offenses nowadays. But I think he has a chance to be a really good corner for us down the road. I really like what I've seen him, and he's performed really well at a bunch of different camps, including the five star challenge for rivals a couple weeks ago. So yeah, I'm happy. I mean, I think Chris Smith is ahead of him right now. And look, I would have liked to have had him at Michael. But I don't think it's a devastating loss, like I said. Um, there's other guys that can do a lot of what he does. I mean, Safety where McMichael was projected, I think we're in better position with a better player in Trey Dean. Yeah, do you think he's going to place uh, a corner, or do you think he's more of a safety? 
Well, I'm saying, but I'm talking about McMichael long term is projected a safety. So yeah, uh, yeah. And you're talking about a big loss. And I, th- and I think, well, I think it's a loss. We're in, I think we're in a better position for a better player. You think? I mean, I know Clemson was recruiting him as safety. Do you really think that we were recruiting him as a safety? I think we. It's one of those we'll give him an option to play both. But I think long term, I like we said. I you know it's been said that he lacks great quick hits, and that's what you have mm-hmm. to have to be a true good corner because we can't play his zone all the time. Where yeah. he, he might have been better in a star position or something. Yeah, and let's not forget about Tyree Johnson out of Trinity Christian Academy down in Florida. Uh, five-star player, has been high on us. You know, he's said in the past, you know, he, he has he has his eyes out west, Stanford, UCLA, you know, but he says if he stays home, or he said this in the past, within the past six months or so, if he stays home, that we would be the school. If he stays close to home, we would be the school, although he's out of Florida. Uh, and he was up here recently, not too long ago, actually about a month or so ago, when they were, I saw I saw him around campus doing a scavenger hunt with all the different recruits that are up there. The coaches each had a group, and he was in one of the groups. I think he was with Coley, if I remember correctly. Uh, but he's another guy who is significantly better than or more. He's ahead of where Kyler Michael is as a as a DB right now. And originally we were recruiting Johnson as a safety, but he's adamant that he wants to play corner, and we're going to give him that opportunity. So he's another guy that we have a really good shot at. Uh, who I like better than McMichael long term. Gilbert Frierson is a guy out of Miami or down in South Florida that we are high on. Uh, we spent a lot. Our coach has spent a lot of time in the spring evaluation period down in South Florida. So I don't know if there's something there, but there's options. You know, we'll have to go go back to the board and go to the next guy. Um, but I don't think we're we're in. I don't think we're going to be hurting because we don't get Kyler McMichael. It'd be nice to have him, but it's not something that's going to destroy this class by any means at all. All right, and question number eight, our last question for part one of the June Mailbag. We'll be back on Thursday again. This is from Mean Machine on Twitter. Did the loss of Mo Smith directly lead to Bama's title loss in 2016? Could the pick plays have been sniffed out by a more veteran back? So, um, I'm, I'm going to say, say no because I think the you know Mo Smith may have started, but that was still no guarantee that he was going to be the starter. And at the same time, I think what hurt Bama was more like the loss of people like Eddie Jackson, and they yeah. had some more other injuries uh, that forced problem. some of these guys into that position. Yeah, the problem. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't catch you up. Go ahead. Well, and, and I was going to answer question two when you talk about picks. I don't. It really doesn't matter who's out there. You can't stop picks. It's by the design of the play. It, 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 yeah. The only way to stop the pick is to not follow the man to man. Is to not play man coverage because if you're following your guy and you're in a sit pocket man coverage, the way the play is designed, it is to pick you. The only way you avoid the pick is to round outside the oncoming receiver or defender and then take yourself out of the play, which is what it's designed to do. So it's it's one of the things that unless the they call it, unless the refs are calling it very closely, it's very difficult for a defense to defend that if it's executed properly by the offense. It's extraordinarily yeah, that, difficult. That's why I, I don't think it matters what veteran or someone's there. It really comes down to, like you said, the play call. Yeah, if Mo Smith would have been there, I think they would have been better off than having Tony Brown because once, like you mentioned, Eddie Jackson, him getting hurt was the big thing. That was the loss that hurt them. Once Eddie Jackson got hurt, they had to move things around the, in the defensive backfield. They had to move Minka Fitzpatrick to safety out, out of the nickel back position, which means they had to bring Tony Brown in and put him in nickel, which is a guy that didn't really play all that much for them up to that point. And yeah, if when that happened, that hurt them because Mo Smith would have been in that position at that point, um, more than likely. So... And I, and I think most of it's better than Tony Brown. So I think it, it might have hurt them to a degree, but again, I'm with you in what you said. I don't think there's a ton. That you, if the offense executes it properly, like I said it on the last question, the rules now are favoring the offense so heavily that there's some, there's just nothing a defense can do about it if the offense executes it properly and the referees don't call offensive pass interference. There's just nothing you can do about it if they run it right. So uh, I don't know if it directly led to their loss. I think a big part of the reason they lost the game is a guy named Deshaun Watson. Um, who was just, uh, he was beastly in that game. He really was. And Mike Williams was half bad himself. He's going up there and grabbing balls. So, uh, yeah, it probably would have helped him a little bit, but I don't know if that is what directly led to their titles. But still, a good question, and we definitely appreciate it. All right, guys, that does it here for us today on part one of the June Mailbag. We enjoyed doing it like we always do. Hope you guys enjoyed it as well. If we did not get to your question, there's quite a few of you. We will get to it on part two on Thursday, so make sure to check back with us then for that show. Uh, For Curtis, I'm Tyler. As always, guys, go dogs.